Welcome once again to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. When I open the door, but somehow it feels brand new, like a In this episode, Pastor Andrew talks about a non-judgmental righteousness and how this Christ-like trait in us will be the lure that brings people into the kingdom of God. This morning I want to pick up on the next element of what we've been talking about, and that is Oaks of Righteousness and our readings from Isaiah and from the Gospel both focused on that. The forces of evil that has cost us our credibility need to be addressed, and those forces of unrighteousness can no longer be entertained in our lives and in the life of our church. However, it cannot be a judgmental righteousness, but an earthy righteousness seen in the life of Jesus and called for by Isaiah in his message of hope that the oaks of righteousness will rebuild the ancient ruins. Difficult sometimes when the ancient ruins don't realize that they are in ruins, even in Isaiah's time. He was sent to the community of Israel, initially and then Judah in the future, with a message of destruction, a message to tear down, rip up. So when Isaiah says, how long should I do the job? God says, until there's nobody left, which is not a good ministry. You know, ministries be like, hey, we go in, fill up a church, have it to overflowing, build a new church have it to overflowing. But Isaiah's ministry was, tear it down, and when it's empty, you've got your job done. I don't know how you would feel about that call, but I think it took Isaiah by surprise. But he volunteered before he knew what was required. So when we talk about having an earthy righteousness, we're talking about the type of righteousness that Jesus himself had and expressed in his lifestyle, in his ministry and the way in which he treated people. It was not a judgmental righteousness as that held by the Pharisees who basically stood aloof from the lowly sinners, publicans, prostitutes and tax collectors of the Jewish parties, they were considered to be the parties of the people. In other words, the people gravitated to the Pharisees more than they gravitated to the Sadducees, despite the fact that the Pharisees despised them, treated them as they were nobodies and demanded a righteousness from them that would have been impossible 
for anybody to achieve. That's why Jesus in Matthew's Gospel says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling people who are overburdened by the demands of the law, the religious expectations that the Pharisees had of them, expectations that just got overwhelming to keep. And so Jesus calls them to a place of rest. Instead of having to toil for God's favour, to rest in God's favour that has come to them through him. The Pharisees basically had an extremely judgmental attitude to the sinners, the tax collectors and the publicans. In fact, for them to mix with such people would be to make them unclean, according to the law, or at least the interpretation of the law that they took. So you wouldn't find them mixing with the lower classes. And yet here we find Jesus mixing with them, going to their parties, being at the pub, mixing with sinners. And he was highly criticised for this. So what was Jesus doing? Did he think it was okay what the sinners were doing? Was he blasé about their having rejected God and rejected God's principles and rejected God's laws? No, we understand from the teaching of Jesus that sometimes what he expected was more extracting than even the Pharisees were doing. So Jesus wasn't throwing away the law He wasn't throwing away moral expectation. He wasn't saying, it doesn't matter what you do. No, it does matter what you do. And what we do has repercussions in our life. And it has repercussions in the lives of others. But Jesus had this way of making those who were down and out and mixed up in almost every wrong thing going on He had this ability to make them feel at home with him. He came to them with a righteousness that was not aloof, did not stand away from them, did not belittle them, did not condemn them. He came with a righteousness full of mercy and ready to understand. And we have a number of stories that reflect this. One was a woman who was a prostitute and where he was sitting having a meal with some Pharisees. She was there at his feet washing his feet with her tears. And the Pharisee criticised Jesus. Don't you know what type of woman this is? And Jesus responded to him and said, since I arrived, 
You've done nothing for me. You haven't had my feet washed, which was a practice of hospitality. But this woman has washed my feet with her tears. Though her sins are many, they will be forgiven. And then he goes on to tell a parable about God's mercy and the hugeness of that mercy. We have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee comes into the temple, basically doesn't lift his eyes up to heaven, but it says that he prays to himself. What a great person I am. What a holy and righteous person I am. I tithe, I do this, I do that. How great I am, O Lord. But the publican can't even lift his eyes to heaven and cries out to God, I am such a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of them went away forgiven? Certainly not the Pharisee. He didn't need any forgiveness. But the publican went away forgiven. But despite that, Jesus still required an adherence to righteousness and holiness, even for those to whom he brought mercy and forgiveness. We have the woman caught in adultery, and they drag her to Jesus, and they want Jesus to condemn her. And Jesus bends down and writes, in the ground, nobody knows what he wrote, and said, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stone and walked away. Then he says to the woman, is there no one here to condemn you? No, Lord. And I don't condemn you either, but go and do not do this again. Right? He didn't approve of what she'd done. He instructs her not to repeat it. But what she encounters in Jesus is something that she would never have found in one of the Pharisees. I mean, they were the ones wanting to stone her. And they were right according to the law. But Jesus brought to her situation, to her brokenness, to her behaviour, forgiveness and mercy and acceptance. And that's the beginning of the nature of righteousness that we're talking about. And if we're truly going to be oaks of righteousness, we need to be reading the Gospels And asking ourselves, each time we read it, and each story we read, how is Jesus treating people? What sort of judgments does he bring to them? What sort of acceptance does he give to them? Because as we study that in our own time, we're going to get a glimpse of the nature of his righteousness 
that wasn't dependent on the law. What was it dependent on? It was dependent on his relationship with God the Father. His righteousness didn't come from obedience to a law or a regulation. It came from a relationship he had with heaven, a relationship he had with Father God, a relationship that he'd had for eternity. But in the incarnated person of Jesus Christ, he develops a righteousness that is expressed in everything that he does. And it's the nature of that righteousness that we're talking about when we talk of oaks of righteousness. But there's something else before we go there, and it comes out of our two readings. And that is that we have to have an epiphany about our sin. What do I mean by that? Somewhere in the midst of our encounter with God, we have to have a revelation of the nature of sin and our sin. Not somebody else's sin. We're very good at picking up the sinful things of others. Now, this is our sin. We can't take on the righteousness of Jesus if we don't come to grips with our own sinful nature and what Jesus has done that releases us from that nature and then enables us to grow in righteousness. We have to see it. And both Isaiah and Peter see it. If you want to say, who in the Bible should I look up about righteousness? Isaiah. He and Ezekiel are the guys that encounter a vision of God's holiness and righteousness. And he wasn't looking for it. He was minding his own business. And there's a revelation of God in his midst on a throne with the angels and the holiness and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is just surrounded in the presence and holiness of God. And it throws him. He says, I'm ruined. Another version says, I'm undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was a religious man. He was an Israelite, raised in the law, understood the commands of God. But he, like his people, had grown slack and shifted away from that righteousness, had shifted away from the obedience of the law and had allowed himself to become so unclean. But he didn't know it. And it is the presence of the holiness of God that makes him so aware of his unworthiness. So aware that he believes he has no hope. It's over. It's finished. He's finished. Then an angel takes a coal from the fire 
takes it down and puts it on his lips and he's clean through and through. Cleansed. Cleansed by what? Cleansed by the holiness of God. And it's interesting when he says unclean lips, it's not just the words he's saying, but it's the heart he's saying it with. And as that coal touches his lips, he is cleansed to the depths of his being. He is a different man. And I think he might have been a bit giddy. Because God says, who will we send? Who will go for us? And in his giddy state, Isaiah says, hey, why not me? And they said, right, Isaiah, you can go for us. And then he says, what am I supposed to do? And he's supposed to go to Israel and just declare its destruction. A message to declare till there was no one left. But you know, there's a funny thing about righteousness. There's a funny thing about this holiness that was imparted to Isaiah that day. A holiness he calls oaks of righteousness. In that despite his call, his message to both Israel and Judah, to Israel who were going to be totally destroyed and carted away by Assyria, never to come back again. And Judah, who the most would be carted to Babylon and some would return 70 years later. But despite that, the most positive promises and powerful messages of God come in the book of Isaiah. So many encouraging messages of God's salvation, of God's deliverance, of God's provision, of God's Messiah, of God's servant Messiah, are just throughout the book. So you go through this section that is devastating, and next thing, there's incredible hope. There is not a book in the Bible like Isaiah. And many scholars have said Isaiah was the first gospel. Because a lot of what Jesus said about himself came out of Isaiah. A lot of what we have in the gospels comes out of Isaiah. He's the one who said, blessed are the feet of him who brings good news. So there on this day, Isaiah learns about earthy righteousness. A righteousness that comes from the presence of God, not from the law, not from regulations, not from rules. Now Peter, he and his partners are just coming back from fishing. Jesus asked whether he could borrow their boat. He had a big crowd of people who were pushing on him. He's by the sea. Do you mind if I use your boat, just push out a little bit and let me teach the people? 
So there's Peter sitting in his boat and Jesus talking to the crowds and teaching them. And Peter is listening. Now at this point, it wasn't striking him that deeply. Until when Jesus was finished, he says, why don't you push out into the deep and throw your nets out? He says, we are professional fishermen. We know our business. There are no fish out there. We've been trying all night. There's no fish out there. But he said, okay, if you want to make a point of it, I'll push out. And they were dragging so many fish in, the nets were breaking. Had to get their partner's boat to come and help. And somewhere in the midst of this, Peter stops. And he is overwhelmed. Because right there in the midst of this miracle, and Peter knows this is a miracle. Peter knows he's seen the impossible. And this impossible had been done by the man standing in his boat. The man who had been teaching this stuff to the crowds. And he was undone. He falls to his knees and cries for Jesus to leave him because I am a sinner. So here Peter has a revelation of himself. Now, it may have been happening while he was listening to the teaching, but it was the miracle that took it over the top and made him realise he has no right to be in the presence of this person. And I think he had no idea who he was. No idea who Jesus was. But had no right to be there and begs Jesus to leave. Instead, Jesus brings to him the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and then calls him to fish for men. And I'm sure that he was going to have to learn a different type of bait to do that. We need in our walk with God to have a revelation of our own sin. If we don't have that, we will become aloof. In a sense, we'll become like the Pharisees. Little judgmental. Not a whole judgmental. Not going to the extent they did, but it will be there. And we won't be able to shake it. Because we still don't understand ourselves. Now, does that mean we're bad people? No. You know, I was an atheist before I came to Jesus. But I thought I was a pretty good person. And when you come to God through Jesus, when you're converted, you are forgiven. The burden of sin is taken from your back like the story of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. It actually happens. It's like sin that has been sitting on you and overburdening you just falls away and you're forgiven and you stand forgiven. But in the next little while, God wants to teach you. He wants you to understand the nature of your sin. 
And I remember this day sometime after my conversion and I'm having a wonderful time with God and somehow or other my moral principles came up for review. And I said I thought I was a pretty nice person until God put my morals beside his morals and I was no longer good. I was no longer right. And I had to tussle with that and come to grips with that. I'm truly a sinner. It's in my makeup. And no matter how good I thought I was, when we line up with what God is, we're just not there. But he did it with an incredible gentleness and mercy. So that I, at the end of the process he took me through, I understood I was forgiven. But I also understood who I'd been. And then he began to grow me in an earthy type of righteousness. So let me tell you my fish story because I think it reflects this earthy righteousness. I was at Marimbula and I used to fish off the jetty. And I was there one day and this older gentleman was there. And he had just cast his line into the middle of the river. And he just sat it down on the jetty. And about two seconds later, a fish took his bait and his rod. And both of us are standing watching his rod go screaming out into the middle of the river. Both stunned. And he stood there for some time looking at his rod that was gone. He finally realised he needs to go home. He had nothing to fish with. So he took off. About an hour later, I draw in a fish in. And I'm reeling this fish in. And what I get on my hook is his line. I had the fish on his line that had taken his rod. And with the help of a boat guy, we managed to get the rod in and this huge salmon. So we had fish that night. I could have left it at that. But he had told me that this was a rod that he'd had for 30 years. And I thought, I have to find him. I have to find him and give him his rod back. And we put a note in the bait shop and he finally came round and recovered his rod, gave us a set of glasses. And I thought, I didn't have to do that. But if I had earthly righteous, I had to do that. If we're catching men and women, wear the bait. It's not the right words you need. It's not the right system you need. It's not the right study you need. It's not even the right website you need. We are the bait. We are the lure. 
It is that righteousness in us that gives them a mellowness of acceptance that attracts them to Jesus, that convinces them he's real. doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. Yes, we've got to preach and we've got to do stuff, we've got to talk and a whole bunch of things, we've got to ask them, are you a person of expectation? But where the bait? It is that earthly righteousness in us that will become so attractive to them. So earthly righteousness is something that God has been doing in us, but we need to enhance. It's like cleaning the lure. And just allowing that presence of God to sift through us. Let us pray. Father, you know that righteousness is such a hard entity to get the balance between our sense of sin and our sense of righteousness, the danger of judgmentalism, the danger of standing aloof, We ask for a fresh breeze of your spirit through us that we might truly have an earthy righteousness to be oaks of righteousness in the midst of this broken world that we might grow a church that is truly righteous and walks in your holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.